0: We've got a recommended course of action for anyone with exposure to the Russian stock market, and we've got a few thoughts on the latest turn of investing-related events in China. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst, Bill Mann. Happy St. Patrick's Day!
1: Thank you, Chris. Can I just say from the outset that Rage Against the Machine was not specific about the type of machine they were so angry at, but I'm pretty sure it was a printer. That's what my day's been. I, th- I
0: think, <laughs> I, think uh, I know I can identify with that, and I think uh, some of the dozens of listeners can identify with raging against. I was trying to print one page and I ended up printing
1: 64 without noticing, so I need to finance my new set of ink. <laughs> In the great scheme of things, not that big of a deal, but it's it's my cross to bear at the moment.
0: Well, let's get to a much bigger deal and talk about Russia's economy. and We'll start with the stock market because Russia's stock market was supposed to open this week and best I can tell did not. We will get to the overall economy and the potential for Russia defaulting on its debt in a little bit, but let's talk stocks first. Um, what happened with the stock market and where are we now?
1: So The Russian Central Bank uh, closed their stock market once Western sanctions were placed on on Russia, which was, you don't want to give them too much credit, it was probably the right thing to do. And then on Saturday, they decided we're not going to open up the market just yet. So they've they they decided to keep the market closed for another week. Now it's important to note that this wasn't an exchange decision. This was made by the central bank, which is not really the type of meddling that you would see in, you know, in in the US for example. The Federal Reserve does not have much power to tell the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq hey, hit the showers, take a day off, we'll see you tomorrow. Those those types of things are done on much more independent basis. But Russia is, in a lot of ways, a centrally managed economy.
0: I don't own any Russian stocks directly. Um, I'm guessing uh, a good number of people listening don't either. Although it is possible, um, probably more possible, that people might own through global funds that they own or ETFs. How worried should investors be about their exposure to Russian stocks right now?
1: I think at this point there's no real reason to worry because the damage has been done. Right? Like why worry now? Like it's 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 finished. And I actually I actually have the pleasure uh said in air quotes of owning two Russian stocks uh, like individually and that's not been a whole lot of fun. You know, I think that uh you know, wh- What ultimately will happen? There's a lot of talk about having uh, the Russian stocks removed from the emerging and developing market indices, Um, and that's going to be that'll be painful because these these indices, you know, and and uh, the uh, funds that track them will do that all at once. Now, I am as a veteran value investor. I love the thought of going in and finding companies in areas that everybody else is selling. I don't think this is one of those situations. I think, you know, I think that Russia is in for a world of hurt for a very long time. It will be a long long time before Russia is treated as you know as as a a country in the normal sense as far as the financial markets go so this is not an area to wade into um Eventually, the Russian stock market will open back up, and you know I I'm seeing now a lot of funds do something called fair valuing, and so for companies like uh, Yandex, which last traded at 18 bucks in the U.S., it's being fair valued at somewhere about eight dollars by you know by by these uh, by these funds. So that feels about right to me.
0: There's a lot of talk now of the potential for Russian assets being frozen. So you know you you can more of
1: them. What's left?
0: <laughs> so, what is the ripple effect of the, from that? Because you know, you think you know. We've been talking about the Russian stock market, and look, if you're an investor in Russia, um, the world of hurt that you referred to um, is is hitting your investment account in in very real ways that uh, could last for a long time. In terms of ripple effects for other countries, what what, if any, exist in terms of Russian assets being frozen?
1: Well, I think that uh, you know, obviously, when you when you talk about Russian assets being frozen, they are frozen somewhere, you know. So, for example, uh, in the United Kingdom has been a prime repository for for assets that have left Russia. The, the, the uk banking system has a huge amount of russian assets you know you also look at uh, you 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 look at, at countries like china you know i think in any if if you look back uh over the last couple of weeks one thing that has happened uh is is that raw material and commodity prices have spiked not just oil and gas but also things like nickel but also the US dollar it has has spiked against almost every other currency in the world and that is really 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 troubling for countries again like China that are effectively short those commodities so yeah when when you freeze a market like Russia's you are not only you, you are not only creating pressure on Russia you're creating pressure on anybody who has exposure to them and so we've seen it in the in the nickel market we've seen it in the oil and gas market i think we're going to see it in other places too
0: it's a great point because i i think that for for a lot of people watching the military situation play out in ukraine it is uh, natural to want that to end as peacefully and as quickly as possible. It, I understand the, um, the thinking behind, we need to punish Russia, um, let's issue some sanctions, let's do what we can. But at some point, it's not just you know punishing Russian billionaires, it hits on the business level that, as you said, there are raw materials coming out of Russia that a lot of businesses, including businesses in the United States of America, that they rely on. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Obviously there is, you know, there there's been a lot of pressure that's put on the Russian oligarchs. It's a very, you know, it's it, it's a very attractive way to go after the power structure in Russia. I don't know how effective that actually is. Uh, because of the way that, uh, that Vladimir Putin has allowed them to retain their wealth by specifically staying out of the political game. So, yeah, at some point, and I know this isn't an attractive thing to say, an off-ramp might be, you know, might be something that is going to help the situation for everyone going down the road, as opposed to some form of mutually assured financial destruction.
0: The last time Russia defaulted uh, on their debt, I believe, was 1998. Um, and while it did not cause a, a worldwide financial panic, it did send some ripples through other markets. If I'm reading stuff correctly, and I like to think that I am, there is a 30-day grace period that kicks in. So if if they can't make the payment on their debt, they have till mid-April. To make good on that, assuming that is the case, and the grace period kicks in, then I guess the clock starts ticking uh, until like maybe April fifteenth. But I guess my question is, as an investor, how worried are you about Russia defaulting on their debt?
1: So, uh, actually. A better allegory to think about Russian a Russian debt default in this case is actually nineteen seventeen than nineteen ninety eight because in nineteen ninety eight okay I wasn't around
0: in nineteen seventeen nor
1: was I nor was I so let let's just all put a pin in the fact that this is received wisdom. In the in nineteen ninety eight Russia defaulted on its domestic its ruble denominated debt. In this case, we're talking about one hundred and fifty billion dollars, and I think one hundred and seventeen million in in dollar denominated debt. That's what they have to pay and they have to pay it with an absolutely defenestrated ruble at this point. So the question is not just can they pay, but what are they going to pay with? Cuz they can't pay in rubles. They are supposed to pay in dollars. So that's 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 the big question and again When you talk about now, about eighty percent of this debt is also held uh, by Russians. So once again, there's there's your pain threshold. Uh, But twenty percent of it is held by pension funds. It's held by banks. It's held as you know. It's held as collateral. It's held on their balance sheet. So, yeah, there are. There are banks in Austria, for example, and banks in the UK that have some really uncomfortable exposure and are really hoping to see those payments come through because nobody wants to see that clock start ticking.
0: Realistically, and to the extent that uh, there is a relatively simple explanation for this, what needs to happen between now and mid-April for the ruble to rebound, for Russia to be able to finance this debt? in a way that, that makes um, maybe not everybody happy, but satisfied enough.
1: Well, since we're talking about debt instruments, the people who own the debt have to be made happy. Right? It's not this isn't a compromise situation. You are either you you have either satisfied your debt or you are you you are in breach. So it is it's kind of as simple as that. A lot of your question is a little bit above our pay grades because I don't know what's going to happen from here, but essentially these debts have to be paid in full in you know under the terms under which the debt was underwritten. Or Russia and a bunch of Russian companies are going to be in default, and and that will be, you know, as they say, those will be interesting times.
0: Before we move on, what are you watching um, now? Where, like, what are, other than an end to the conflict in Ukraine? from an economic standpoint what are you watching to give you a sense of where this story goes next
1: you know what i think it's really it how how is the conflict going because when you're talking about when you're talking about where does the pressure on vladimir putin come from it's from the conflict because the other power center in russia is the military and they if the news is to be believed are having their heads handed to them and ultimately Ultimately, it comes down to that. It comes down to the negotiations which we see pop up from time to time, and but ultimately, that's it. How's it going there? Because that's the big, that's the big pressure, that's the big gamble uh, that he has taken, and that's going to be the ultimate arbiter of how quickly and under what conditions uh, the world moves on to its next phase.
0: All right, before I let you go, I want to circle back to the conversation we had on Tuesday because we talked about Chinese stocks in the US, um, Alibaba, Tencent, JD.com, Baidu, which at that point were all down 25% at least in the matter of just a few days. um, For very valid reasons, the SEC was threatening to delist some stocks. Wall Street firms were downgrading pretty much every Chinese stock out there. And you'd made the comment at the time that. the Chinese government was basically okay with this because they prefer their companies to list in Shanghai and Hong Kong. I'm wondering if regulators in the United States and China were actually listening to our episode on Tuesday, because in the last 36 hours, those stocks (laughs) have bounced back up on the news reports that the U.S. and Chinese regulators are working on a plan to cooperate. Um, China says it will support Chinese companies having IPOs abroad. Um, We've seen the stocks that I mentioned before bounce back up, and I'm wondering what you make of, in particular, the comments that have been uh, made public from, I think it's the vice premier in China.
1: So I, I want to take a little bit of a step back because I want to put some frame around what we're talking about here. Because yes, that was that that was pretty spectacular timing for, you know, for us to have that conversation about Russia being a manipulated market and one that was dominated by the interests of the state, and for the state interest only a few hours later for them to say, well, yeah, we're going to do we're going to do more than you thought we were going to do. That still means that the market. Uh, is manipulated. It was just manipulated in a little bit of a different way uh, than it had been over you know, over the over the previous, I don't know, call it 18 months. So in the last seven years, the US stock market as measured by the NASDAQ is up by 177%. Chris Hill, how much is the Chinese stock market up over the last seven years?
0: I'm gonna take the under. Minus three percent. Wow, I was just thinking under one hundred seventy-seven percent. Minus three percent cumulative, right? You can annualize
1: that, but it comes out to your money has your money has sat absolutely positively. You know, all you've had is opportunity costs go out the door. You know, I think that the thing that keep in mind, uh, you know, is that when they're talking about delisting. Chinese stocks in the U.S. market. It doesn't necessarily mean, and it it does not mean at all that they're going to be delisted and you don't own anything anymore. It just means that they're going to be much more difficult to trade. Certain brokers in the U.S. have access to the Hong Kong market, which is the most likely location they would go. Uh, And I think that the Chinese government was 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 pretty smart to come out and say, "Look, it's not going to be as bad as all this," but for Americans who do not have access to a market that trades in Hong Kong, that does not mean that they're not going to end up having, uh, you know some difficulty trading these stocks and the tension that we talked about the other day the fact that the chinese law does not allow its auditors to be you know to be accountable to outside you know to outside to foreign regulators that hasn't changed and until that changes i would say that at best there is a yellow light over all of the chinese adrs that are listed in the united states
0: for people who have either directly in the stock itself or through a mutual fund or ETF, um, is this one of those situations where you want to contact whichever brokerage you have your money with and say, "Hey, let me run a scenario by you. Let's just say this happens. What are my options?" It seems like one of those good times.
1: I absolutely would, and why? And and I would say that the brokers that are that in my experience are most prepared to handle this are Fidelity. Uh, Schwab and Interactive Brokers. If it's a mutual fund you're talking about, don't worry at all. The mutual funds have plenty of ability to trade, uh, to trade overseas. Uh, if you aren't with one of those brokers, it is in fact worth a call. Just and and you're just scenario planning with them. And I wish that we could give an omnibus answer here. We can't because every broker has a little bit of a different access, a little bit of a different rules. And I would say call them up, ask for the international desk and just ask, what is going to happen if the Chinese ADRs are delisted with your, with my funds in this brokerage? And get an answer for them. I think that that's good advice. Great idea that you came up with.
0: You and I were chatting earlier, and I mentioned, um, among other things, I think it's always helpful for um, particularly U.S. investors to remember the speed with which the Chinese government moves is much, much faster than the speed with which the United States government moves. The, um, the, the SEC regulations that uh, I referred to earlier, that was something that took years to enact into law. That took then, I, I believe, another 18 months of the SEC working with these companies and before they finally got to the point where they said, hey, it's official warning time as opposed to yeah, right. <laughs> the chinese government in a single statement says oh okay we'll just make, we'll just make this work
1: yeah so i have a friend who is an old chinese hand and he's lived in china for four decades now and i asked him one time what was the what, what was the thing that he still did not understand about about china and he said it is still completely opaque how decisions get made It at almost every level. But here's what's true about China. They go through the process every five years of having of of building a five year plan and it's and and it's and it's around a central conflict. And there is a whole lot of discussion about what that struggle is. But once that struggle is identified, then the decisions that come after it seem to be made very quickly. They are either they are they they are either in support of that central struggle or they are in a little bit of conflict with the central struggle. So once you've got that once you've got that uh that position defined, decisions that come after that can be made pretty quickly. It is also, I guess you could say nice not to have to ask anybody else what their opinion is about the topic. You know, maybe that's uh you know, maybe that's maybe that's maybe maybe I'm glorifying uh you know a, a an autocratic system a little too much, but it is it is the case. I you know Newsflash, Bill Man hates democracy. No, 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 no. (laughs) But there is certainly, if you don't have to ask the populace what their opinion is, decisions can be made much, much
0: faster. Really appreciate you talking through all this. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, but don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.